0: When God created us, the scripture tells us that he created us in his image. Theologians for centuries have tried to discern and then explain exactly what this means. Some people say that my sons, at least two of them, look a lot like me, especially my older one. And he does. For good or for bad, he is like his father in the way that he looks. We look a lot like my paternal grandfather, who maybe is my favorite guy who ever lived. And so because of that, I'm thankful. So when you see my son, in some ways you, you see me. That's not exactly what it means to be created in the image of God, because God is a spirit. Spirit. If you've taken time to do catechisms in days gone by, you have learned that God does not have a body like men. So the fact that we have livers and kidneys and elbows and knees, that is not exactly what it means to be created in the image of God. There's there's aspects to us being physical which reflect some of the image of God, but but being created in the image of God is more immaterial than that. So if you were to spend time with my eldest son, you would say he looks like you, but even more so you would say he acts like you. Again, for, for good or bad, right, Jack? We share the same strengths and weaknesses. And being created in the image of God means that in many ways we are like him. What does it mean to be like God? Well, God has a will. God has volition. He made us to have will, to have volition. God has cognition. God thinks. God is wise and God reasons and God plans. And God has affections. He desires things. He loves things. He hates things. And He implanted within us affections. We desire things and love things and hate things as well. So, so part of what it means to be created in the image of God is to have all these same things that He has, not the least of which is that He created us with affection. Now, there are some of us in the church family who sometimes wonder if we actually do have affection because when super happy things happen, we might have a little slight grin. And when really bad things happen, we wonder why everybody else around us is crying. There are some of you who can cry at the slightest thing, happy or sad. You feel everything. And oftentimes he puts people like that On one end of the spectrum and a person on the other end of the spectrum into one family and you have to to learn to love each other. And some of you are laughing because you know that this is true. The rest of us are somewhere in the middle, right? There's some days where we feel really deeply and there's others day less so. But all of us have learned what it's like to live in this life with desire. God made us that way. God did not make us merely to be robots, to be automatons, which just merely respond to stimuli. I say to all of you pet lovers, I have a dog, and in a dog way, I love her, but she doesn't love me back. And I know you're thinking about your dog right now, and you think, well, you don't know my dog. My dog has like a semi-soul, and my dog loves me in return. Well, well maybe, like your dog likes to be around you, and your dog loves it whenever you give it food and take it on walks, but, but your dog doesn't have affections like you do. It wasn't created in the image of God. Dogs respond to to stimuli, to environmental things. Now, if you're really mad at me, please forgive me and let's move on, okay? But humans alone were made with, with affections, the ability to desire things, the highest things. Now, because of the fall, those affections, like everything else inside of us as image bearers, was warped. What about our volition? Our our volition got warped in the fall. We developed our own will that pursued our own way. We tried to deify man and follow our our own course. Our cognition, the way that we think, that got messed up as well. That explains why we often reason poorly. It often explains why we have mental health issues. Our, Our cognition was affected by the fall. But so too were our affections, the things that we feel and the things that we desire. So when Christ came and lived a perfect life and died in our place and took the punishment that we deserved and was raised victorious over sin and death through his resurrection, truly he came to offer us reconciliation to God. And justification before God. We're acquitted We're we're no longer under condemnation, those of us who have trusted Christ. He, He came to bring us adoption, to bring us back into the family of God. He came to bring us sanctification and make us holy once again. And then this last point, in this point of sanctification, which in some ways is positional, initial, We were unholy, and then because of Christ, we're immediately made holy when we trust him. But but sanctification, the process of growth and holiness, also has has a trajectory in mind. So when Christ came to save us, he came to adopt us and to to reconcile us and to justify us, but also to sanctify us and, and make us who we weren't, to make us into something we've never been, to restore On this earth one day, a full paradise, better than the first one. Occupied by really holy people. But we will not arrive at that final day of of full restoration until we are transformed progressively in this life. Where am I going with all of this in relation to Acts chapter 13? What you find, really throughout the book of Acts... And we'll see it today in these first 12 verses of the book of Acts that these people who once were unholy, with fallen wills and fallen minds and fallen affections, had been restored by Christ to be transformed in every way. And one of the ways that he was sanctifying this early church and transforming them is to give them a heart for what he loved. Whereas formerly they loved themselves and did everything possible to position themselves, to protect themselves, now instead, because he was changing their affections and changing their desires, then their minds changed, and and then their will changed, and then the very things that they did, the, the way that they invested themselves in this life changed. But it began with a change in what it was they desired This is seen in no one more clearly than perhaps the central figure of this passage. In Acts chapter 13, verses 1-12, he who is both known as Saul and Paul, he who was a homicidal maniac seeking to stamp out the early church, had become one who was willing to lay his very life on the line for this church. In fact, in this very first missionary journey that we will begin to read about today, Paul is stoned for the first time. His life will be in danger throughout the rest of his life until he has his head lopped off for the sake of Christ and the kingdom. Paul's affections, his desires were radically transformed and it changed the world. What I want to say to you today is that we have the opportunity to change the world Not in like a a Michael Jackson kind of like sappy way. Good song. But but like really, songs don't heal the world. Christ heals the world and he does it through his people. But only through those whose affections are transformed to treasure and value the things that he values and then leverage all of their resources to whatever degree is necessary to get Jesus' healing message to the world. So with all that in mind, let's read Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, and see how Jesus was transforming a formerly rebellious people to be his messengers of his good news and what lessons are here for us as well. This is God's word. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Herein we find the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey, and by most accounts, most theologians believe there were three major missionary journeys of Paul. Paul. In total, Paul and his companions will cover almost 900 miles by foot. Most of us have a hard time getting off the couch to go get a glass of milk. It's estimated that they walked perhaps as much as 15 miles per day by foot. That's exhausting, right? Why would a guy who had every conceivable comfort afforded to him? who had a great future in front of him, how possibly could such a man leave all of that behind who was on a fast-tracked stardom in his religion and among his people? How could such a man leave all of that behind and instead choose a life of discomfort? Turn with me, please, if you don't mind, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For just a moment, let's read about what Paul's life was like. This one who had a chance at stardom and comfort. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says to us in verse 23, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. He was dealing with opponents in the church in Corinth, and so he wanted to establish that he was trustworthy, they should listen to him and, and honor him and, and pay attention as they grew in the faith. Middle of verse 23, I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, plural, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews... Verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And just to add one more thing, apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's life was not a life of comfort. How was it that one who had a trajectory, the the hope of comfort and stardom in front of him, how was it he could give his life over to such a thing? Well, it is only explainable because he believed fundamentally that his only hope in life or death was Jesus Christ. And he was willing to leverage his life even at great cost and peril to himself to get the gospel to those who desperately needed it. Barnabas, Paul's companion here, had put his arm around Paul, literally and metaphorically, and brought him into the faith and instructed him well. And now he and Barnabas, as we see at the end of chapter 12, come back to Antioch. And this is going to be their base of operations. The first thing we find in this passage, in the first three verses, the Spirit gifts churches and calls them to mission. The Spirit gifts churches and calls them to mission. It'd be tempting to say the Spirit gifts the church, universal, and calls it to mission, but but this is a specific church, and so are we. What was this early church in Antioch like? Well, it had been planted strategically. In part, we know from chapter 11, the early church in Antioch had been planted, so to speak, by people that had heard the gospel in Cyprus, who brought the gospel to those in Antioch. Now, what's interesting here in chapter 13 is the reverse is going to happen. The church in Antioch is going to go back to Cyprus and bless that island. This early church had taken root. We saw at the end of chapter 11 that Barnabas went to get Saul, who we better know as Paul, to help really establish this church in Antioch. And notice after some time what it was like. It had plenty of prophets. These are people who received revelation from the Lord and instructed the people. And then teachers, teachers who took the revelation of the Lord and instructed the people in the way of the faith, both from the Old Testament, which they possessed, and prophecies that Christ was giving the church from heaven. They seem to be somewhat interchangeable, these prophets and teachers. But their primary job, their primary role was to instruct the early church to know God and especially his revelation of Christ, the Messiah, who had been prophesied to come and rescue the world from sin. And so people like Barnabas, notice his name is at the head of the list. He would have been the leader at this point. Simeon. A man from North Africa, probably a black man. Lucius, also perhaps a North African. Manan, who had had access to Herod's court, perhaps a wealthy man, at least at one point influential. And at the end of this list, at this point, a man named Saul. This Saul of Tarsus who had been converted on the way to Damascus, the one who had tried to stamp out the church. This was a dream team. This was a team of diverse people with diverse gifts that Christ had planted in this strategic church. Antioch was an important city in Roman culture, in Roman government, and a church took root, a strong church. What we will find here in these first three verses, a reproductive church, a group of people that was instructing a larger group of people to give their lives away. At this point, these leaders, Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manan and Saul, they had begun to give their lives away. They had had set aside other privileges. We see Barnabas back earlier in this book of Acts, giving away property and money. We see Saul giving away his fast track to comfort and stardom. And here together, they are worshiping, they are, they are instructing, they're, they're doing it in a diverse setting, setting aside all their prejudices and, and all their prerogatives to instruct a group of people. And, and then the Spirit shows up. Now, how he spoke to them, whether it was an audible voice or, or an impression, like, like a feeling and a desire, it's not clear from Luke's writing. But, but in some way or another, it was clear to them that, that God from heaven through the Spirit was telling them to send away their best. And and that's what they did. Now, just to make sure that they got this right, they did some fasting to empty themselves of dependence on anything else but God. And they prayed, and once it was clear to them that this is what God wanted, they laid their hands on them, a mark of approval and commissioning, and they sent them off. So how had the Spirit gifted this church Well, probably in all kinds of ways. But the primary way that the Spirit had gifted this church in Antioch was by giving the gift of people. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, one of my favorite people in the Bible, who leverages his heart and his emotions on behalf of other people for the sake of Christ. Creating a diverse culture of leadership, people like Simeon and Lucius, I'm sure the church had poor people and seemingly wealthy people like Menaean and then, and then this one Saul. You might think whenever they heard the impression from the Spirit, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, they would say to those, wait a minute. Look, we've got a lot of really good people here. You can't possibly take these two. But that's exactly what the Spirit wanted. Jesus was going to take care of this church in Antioch. We will see it show up again. They were not dependent on these two particular people. It's an important lesson here. The church in the Antioch, our particular church today, it is not dependent on particular people. This church belongs to Christ. It doesn't belong to the elders or a particular leader. it belongs to Christ, and he can do with us whatever he wants. And from heaven, the Lord Jesus is directing this church to leverage its blessings in the environs around them. And and that's what they're going to do. They're going to take some of their gifts, some of the blessings that have been afforded to them, and leverage them on behalf of others. We've already seen people like Barnabas and Saul set aside previous ambition be rescued by Christ and have new holy ambitions. It's easy with Saul to say that his prior ambitions, though misguided in ignorance, were evil and wicked. He was seeking to stamp out Jesus' people, justifying homicide. And now he is willing to have his own life put on the line, to have it taken by other ignorant, misguided people, So that they can hear the good news. These men, these leaders in the early church, these prophets and teachers demonstrate to us what it is like to have transformed affections and desires. And the only way to explain that is the work of the Spirit and the hope of the gospel. And so we do have to question whether or not the power of the gospel is something that we really believe and something that we really embrace. The reconciliation that has been afforded to us from heaven, something that we would not have sought out because we didn't seek for God. He came after us, us us rebels seeking to deify ourselves and and make our own kingdoms. He came after us and ended our rebellion and made us his own. And he calls us to be witnesses because this is how God saves. God saves by taking transformed people, transformed in, in cognition and volition And in affections and desires, the things we treasure, he takes such people and he transforms the world. Barnabas and Saul were already on that course. They were no longer seeking to to be wealthy in this world, to be influential in this world, to be comfortable in this world. So when the Holy Spirit shows up and says, give me these two guys, and I'm gonna send you on a 900-mile journey on foot, and there's no guarantee you'll make it back. Now, Luke doesn't tell us everything that went on, all the discussions that went on. Maybe the initial impression came to Simeon. And Simeon said to, to, his, to his buddies, these leaders, I'm pretty sure that the Holy Spirit just told me, and they're like, how do you know, but, but told me that Barnabas, you and Saul are supposed to go out. If Barnabas and Saul were, were seeking to protect themselves and, and lead lives of insulation and comfort, you might find them saying, well, are you sure? Maybe, maybe you misheard the Holy Spirit and he wanted Menaean." Now, I'm, I'm being a little funny and trite here, but, but the idea here is that because of Luke's succinct way of saying this, that Barnabas and Saul were like, okay, that's what we'll do. And the only reason they could respond in such a way is because they had higher priorities. Their their affections had been transformed. One of the challenges for us as a church as we study through the book of Acts, where there's not a lot of imperatives, there's there's not a lot of commands, this is is history, this is narrative, is to determine what it was that drove and compelled The early church and what formed their practice. And therein lies great lessons for us. For though there are not a lot of commands here in this book, there are lots of suggestions about how Christ transforms people and that what transformed people do. So I would suggest to you that because the Holy Spirit had gifted this church, took the best of the church and leveraged the best they had, their gifts, for the good of the surrounding region, that there is a great lesson for us here as well. What has he gifted us here with? Well, people, right? He's gifted us with people. How will we, the people of this church, all of which are gifted, how will we take What God has done in us through his son, and leverage it for the good of the concentric circles of our influence. Your next door neighbor, your street, your school, your workplace, your larger family, our city, our state, our nation, our continent, the globe concentric circles of influence. And we have a responsibility to move in and out of those concentric circles of influence getting the good news of Jesus to them. So he has gifted us with people who have the ability to do that. Some of it will be that we, we use our very mouths and our very lives to compel people to consider the hope of the gospel. Some of it may well be the spending of our money. We will find next week as we present to you our proposal for next year's fiscal budget that we want to do even more in missions going forward. We want to get the gospel to those who've never heard, who've had no access to the good news of Jesus. We care deeply about that. And we want to care more. But the only way that we will leverage such resources for the sake of Christ and for the good of the nations and all those concentric circles of influence is if we actually care about it. So I'm not here to beat you up about this. I struggle with this as well. Aren't you shocked and, and saddened? I am by how quickly the most important things in life can be eclipsed by the least important things in life. Even even good things can, can become primary for us in eclipsing the best things. What has Christ done for this, our church, to enrich us and to bless us? That we might take those enriched blessings and bless the world around us. One of my favorite shows to watch on TV is Hoarders. You may ever watch Hoarders? Maybe like two of you? Um, I can't watch it while I'm eating because inevitably they don't just collect magazines and like bird cages. I mean, people collect the weirdest things, but, but often their houses are just disgusting. Like it wouldn't even be appropriate for me to talk about it here as well. And so those of you who are mad at me earlier from my comments about pets, now you'll love me again. It's really sad because a lot of these hoarders sometimes, they really mistreat pets and they'll be like cat people. Like there's something about cat people and hoarding. Um, No offense to those of you who are cat people, um, but like these are like extreme hoarders, right? And they don't just have like three or four cats. They have like 30 cats. I watched one the other day where there were like like a bunch of dead kitten carcasses in the house because these people were just so mentally ill, legitimately mentally ill, that, that they had mistreated these animals. And we look at that and we think, what goes on in a person's mind and in their affections that would, that would lead them to live like that in unspeakable conditions? They're, they're, they're hoarding to themselves all the time, Now, in a, in a lighter sense, but in a more serious sense. A church like ours, which has been gifted with so much, is it not true that we often hoard? It's easy to look at hoarders on television who have gross surroundings and sort of turn our noses up at them. But a church like ours, which has been blessed with so much, if, if we hoard our gifts and we don't share them, people, money, talent, time, are we any better? Isn't that more offensive? Because why has Christ blessed us Christ has blessed us to be a blessing. Isn't this the essence of the Abrahamic covenant? Out of which all this has grown, we are here because of a covenant made to Abraham about 4,000 years ago. And what's the essence of God's covenant with Abraham? I have blessed you to be a blessing. That was fulfilled most clearly because out of Abraham came the Messiah, And the Messiah has blessed, is blessing, and will bless the world. And he has gifted this church to be one of those outposts of blessing. The king is in heaven, and one day he will return. But he has left embassies all over the world, and we're one of them. And he's made us ambassadors for himself to take the gifts that he has given us, and share them, and not to whore them. The Spirit gifts churches and calls them to mission. And then, as we see in verses 4 through 12, the Spirit empowers churches and blesses their mission. So Paul and Barnabas, after having been commissioned by the church and leaving their loved ones behind... They go to Seleucia, about a 20 mile walk or so, and then they sail to Cyprus, about a 60 mile journey. Cyprus is the third largest island in the Mediterranean, a relatively influential island. And they come first to Salamis, the eastern city of the island. And they go to the synagogues. This was Paul's custom, both in this journey and in later ones because he could find a hearing there. People wanted to to learn about new things, especially as they related to the Jewish faith. Christianity is nothing if it's not the outgrowth and the completion of the Jewish faith. They had John to assist them. This will become important later on. He was like an apprentice, likely an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. Then they travel throughout the island and come to Paphos, another influential city. And there they meet the magistrate of the island, Sergius Paulus, and in his company is a man named Bar-Jesus. This means son of Jesus, kind of ironic, son of Joshua. Sergius Paulus is a man of intelligence. He wants to learn more about what it is they're teaching. Word had likely gotten to him about their teaching. So this Bar-Jesus, also known as Elemas, hears Jesus, but Elemas, who is seemingly here, indwelt by a demon, or at least influenced by satanic opposition, seeks to discredit Paul and Barnabas and John. Then notice in verse 9, Saul, who was also called Paul, this is a subtle thing, But throughout the rest of the book of Acts, he will no longer, for the most part, be referred to as Saul, his Jewish name, but as Paul, his Greek name, his name for Roman culture. This is significant. Now, this doesn't mean that he got a new name here. He probably had always had these two names, depending on what context he was finding himself. But because his ministry is primarily going to be to Gentiles, he is now commonly referred to as Paul. Look how bold Paul is here. The same spirit who called him and Barnabas out now fills him. So he looks at Bar-Jesus at Elemas and says, (laughs) these are strong words, right? These are words that I would caution you in your evangelism. You son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Now, if you ever do need to use such words in in evangelism, please tell me the story, because I would love to hear it. I'm sure there's some compelling reason behind it. But this is a special case. And Paul was always bold and seemingly never afraid. And what was so wicked about Elemas, about Bar-Jesus, what was so wicked about him, is that he was openly opposing the spread of the gospel that Sergius Paulus definitely needed. And in fact, because Sergius Paulus was, was a leader, because of his influence, more people likely in Paphos would be transformed. But the devil hates God with, with perfect hatred, not holy hatred, perfect hatred. And he hates God's people with perfect hatred. He, he rages against God and against his people. There's no surprise that such a man who made his living by magic, dark magic, would be opposed to all things holy. He needed to be spoken to in this way. And because the Holy Spirit was with Paul, not only did he speak these words of cursing upon Elemas, he also tells him, you're going to be blind for a while. Now this is also ironic Not only is it ironic that his name was Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, but his very practice would be turned on his head. And it is further full of irony because this is exactly what had happened to Paul, right? Paul thought he saw the light. Paul thought he was a messenger of all things holy and good. And every time he hauled a Christian off to prison and was complicit in their execution, he reveled in it because he thought he was doing good. So he gets a stamp of approval from the leaders in Jerusalem, chapter 9 of Acts, and goes off to Damascus to do more harm to the church, thinking he is doing good on God's behalf. And what happens? he really does see the light. This one who was not seeking for God, God comes after him. Jesus comes after him. And for a time, this man who thought he saw the light is blinded by the light, unable to see. And in his confusion, Jesus transforms him. What did this, this... Servant of Satan, Elemas bar Jesus. This opposer of all things holy and good. What needed to happen to him if he was going to come to the light and oppose the light? He needed to lose his sight. To to become aware that he didn't know the way. This one who sought to influence and lead others, like Sergius Paulus, now had to be led around by others. This one who was seeking to according to Paul, verse 10, make crooked the straight paths of the Lord, couldn't walk in a straight line anymore. And the only thing that could lead him to real light and real life and to real paths of peace and fulfillment is to place his faith in the very one that he was seeking to oppose. And notice the effect that this has on Sergius Paulus in verse 12. The proconsul believed When he saw what occurred, because he couldn't attribute it to anything else but power from heaven. And though Luke does not say this, we probably can draw the conclusion that others did as well. If their magistrate, if their leader could see such things and be influenced, others likely were as well. So the Spirit gifts churches and calls them to mission as their affections and desires and what they treasure changes. And then once our affections and what we treasure changes and we engage, he shows up. That's what he does. My brothers and sisters, you can't save anybody. You cannot convince anyone to turn from the darkness to the light. I suspect that you cannot make seeing people blind so that they can be convinced. You cannot do miraculous things to make others be in awe and turn to faith in the Messiah. But the Spirit Who has gifted us will continue to empower and bless our mission. He will. Now, do we know who He will save? We we do not know. But our church stands as a testimony to what God does through the planting of new ministries. My father was in his mid 20s. He graduated from seminary, didn't know where to go, so he came back home. He came back to Cincinnati was a large Baptist church in sort of the heart of the city there that he had been a part of prior to going away to college and grad school. And they asked him to consider this young guy with a young wife taking over this little missionary church about 20 minutes from where they were in the northern suburbs of Cincinnati. So he went there and, and he did. He couldn't think of anything else to do, so he did. This was 1965. My oldest brother was born a few months later Early on, my father tells me that the church couldn't even pay him a full salary, and so sometimes the old ladies in the church, of which there were only a few because there was only like 25 people, they would bring them groceries to supplement his, uh, his income. And then God blessed that church, and it grew. When I was a little kid, they planted a church in Kentucky, and when I was an older kid, they planted a church in another part of the city, and then when I got older and finished seminary, they called me and said, would you consider planting another church for us in Columbus? And, and that's why this church is here. God blessed that church in Cincinnati, and it's been a blessing to, to the whole state and to the region. The missionaries that we support in the United Arab Emirates, all of that began out of nothing. Nothing. After 9-11, when it seemingly would have been the most scary time for any American to go to the Middle East, let alone the Arabian Peninsula, there was a man that decided that he was going to take his family and go to Dubai. So, Max Stiles obeyed the voice of the Spirit and went to Dubai, found no churches there that were suitable for his family to worship. So, not only began a collegiate ministry there on the United Arab Emirates, but also reformed a church. Now, out of that one church in Dubai, there have been something like eight or ten churches planted all around the country, some of which are quite large, some of which have 80 or 90 ethnicities worshiping in them, and the gospel is spreading all over the region. This is what God does. God takes unlikely sources, seemingly small beginnings, and uses them individually after blessing them and leverages those gifts to bless others. And so that's what he's calling us to. This is the suggestion of this text. The Spirit gifted Antioch with clear blessings. They did not count them as things to hoard and treasure, but leveraged those blessings. And then when they began to leverage them, what did the Spirit do? He empowered them and blessed their efforts. How should we respond to this? Well, first, we should pray for our priorities to be right and then be willing to sacrifice to pursue them. All of us have to individually do this. Are our priorities right? And sometimes the best way to to determine this, to discern this, is how are we spending our treasure, our time and our talent and other resources? And if they aren't in line, let's, let's repent of that. Not just confessing it, but asking the Holy Spirit to change us. And then we've got to go after it. So we have to ask ourselves as a church are our priorities right? And I say to you as one of the shepherds of this church that I see lots of good. But there's more to be done. There are, there are more missionaries to be supported. There are more ministries here in our city to be engaged in. There is more money to be spent. There is more time to be sacrificed. And it's not just the 10 or 30 or 50% of our church that should be doing that. It's all of us. All of us have a role to play. So, so I call you in love And because your identity is not in your performance, but in Jesus, to consider where you're at and make the necessary changes by the Spirit to fully engage with all of the gifts that God has given you. And then as we do that collectively as the church, this city will be affected and our world will be affected. So are your priorities, are our priorities in line with where they should be? In part, the answer is yes. And in part, the answer is no. We have room to grow and to change. And, and then once we recognize it, we have to make the changes necessary to pursue them. And secondly and lastly, we should pray for discernment and courage as we share the good news. Now, maybe not Pauline courage. We've got to be careful, right? Like, uh, the gospel itself is offensive. We don't need to add offense to it. But, but we have to be courageous, you have to be brave. A friend of mine said to me recently, Lee. If you wait for the perfect time to speak words of truth, it'll never come. So just do it. I can be a pretty fearful person. I needed to hear that. So let's pray for discernment to know when to engage. And then we just got to engage. Your life of love, your life of holy moral living is compelling, but it won't save anybody. God saves through the hearing of the gospel and people will not hear Unless we speak it. So, how should we respond? Let us pray that any misplaced priorities would be pointed out and we'd make the necessary changes. And then let us pray for discernment and courage as we engage with individual people. Let's do that together now. Lord Jesus, you have blessed this church with lots of blessings, especially our people. And Lord Jesus, you have helped us by your Spirit to leverage a good bit of those blessings, a good bit of those giftings to bless our community and the world. But Lord Jesus, we have a long way to go. And I pray that you would point out those areas that we have not yet leveraged our gifts. And that sacrificially, because of what you have done for us, we will make the necessary transformational changes and sacrifice the treasures that you have given us to bless others. And, and then as we do that, by your Spirit, show up Empower us, give us discernment, give us courage to speak your good news. So I pray that in the coming days, in this next week, that that a dozen of us would find someone in our sphere of influence, not just to be kind to, but to find ways to really engage them in gospel conversations. Would you do that, Jesus, by your spirit? Would you transform all of us so that we will go out And then a dozen of us this week, I pray that you will help us to, to, with discernment and courage, engage someone in a gospel conversation. Their money can't save them. Their kids can't save them. Their jobs can't save them. Their health can't save them. Jesus, only you can save lost people trapped in darkness. We thank you that you have led us out of the darkness into the light. And now as Sons and daughters of the light, may we take the light to others who desperately need it. Do this, Lord Jesus, for your glory, and do it, Holy Spirit, for the joy of many, known and unknown. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and